1: How's it going, everybody? Really excited to introduce Ryan Poley to the Philacrosophy podcast. Ryan is the head coach, six-year head coach at BU, has built this program uh, from the ground up into being a nationally competitive program. He was uh, Patriot League Coach of the Year in 2017, a two-time New England Coach of the Year, and um, has a really interesting resume, really fired up to have you on and to learn uh, more about your program, your philosophies, and how you're getting it done.
0: Thanks, Jamie. P- pleasure to be here, man. Awesome.
1: The Phil Crosby Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program, now featuring a seven-day free trial period. And here's your host, Jamie Monroe, with more information on how you can get your hands on some of the best lacrosse content out there for free. How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 coaches training programs and the academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse, for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven-day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. You can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're going to want more. Almost everybody gets hooked. All right, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Um, All right, as we usually do, I would love to kick this off with just um, learning about your coaching journey, uh, where you came from, how you got into it, how you got into coaching. Why don't you kind of kick it off from your days back at um, Malvern Prep?
0: Yeah, I mean, my journey is a little unique in in the sense that coming out of, I mean, it kind of just started in high school, Um, trying to figure out what I wanted to play in, in college um was a big part of kind of where my career went and i started lacrosse very late i didn't start to my sophomore year wow uh, malvern prep obviously has this unbelievable tradition and, and it was a really unique thing just i'm a super competitive person and the interact at the time did not have any state championships so basically in football and basketball and baseball once you played the your interact schedule your season was done and lacrosse wasn't sanctioned yet as an interact sport or whatever the loophole was, Pennsylvania had a state playoff. So I'll never forget this day, um, was playing freshman baseball and we were just walking back and they were in this playoff game and they won in overtime. And I had never even seen lacrosse till I got to Malibu. So just this um, energy that it had and then just kind of watching this game that I didn't really know that much about and then winning, uh, you know, quarterfinal game and on the winning in overtime, and then the whole school ended up going to the semifinals. Um, they played in Episcopal Brian Dockerty's team, and uh, Malvern had a great team, but Episcopal was outstanding at the time. And just kind of that was my first introduction to lacrosse. So awesome. um, decided I was going to play the next year. This uh, Coach Rody who was at Malvern and Unionville, and uh, sons both played at Salisbury, really got me into the game. And trying to decide what I was going to play in college because I was, you know, a basketball player and football were my two major sports. You were a quarterback? Um, what's that? You were a quarterback? Yeah, I was a quarterback and then um, a point guard in basketball. And I wasn't a Division One player, but I was a really good high school player. But lacrosse, I kind of took off, you know, even though I, you know, I'd only been playing for two years, did an official visit to Notre Dame, did an official visit to Georgetown. And, you know, I had offers from both places and, and just trying to decide, God, I love football. I love basketball. It's been my whole life, but here's this new sport that I don't know that much about, but I'm starting to get, you know, going out to a Notre Dame basketball game and it was kind of cool. But at the end of the day, I, I chose Merrimack because um, I felt comfortable on campus. It, it was kind of the highest level of basketball that I could play. Um, and that's just what, I. at the end of the day, I just love basketball. So I went to play there, play two, two years of basketball, uh, and then kind of when it didn't work out, um, you know, picked up football for, for two years. And then my, my career kind of took a turn um, and I decided to try lacrosse. And, and it was just like this sport that um, I just fell in love with. It had so many components of both all the sports I I played. And uh, I mean, I basically was a basketball player running around with a stick. So kind of when I got out of playing my four years, I kind of had to make a decision what was I going to do with my life? And as far as coaching went, and I just kind of got this um, Mr. Comic Steve, right, it was a high school coach at, at North Andrew. He offered me a JV job, and this was my first year out. I was in the accounting world. I was going to take the job, and another connection I had from Merrimack said, "Hey, do you want to start this girls' program? We're starting this brand new program." And it just, my, my mom is a Hall of Fame field hockey coach from Pennsylvania. And I just, I just, my dad was a coach, you know, almost made the Olympian soccer team. So, I mean, I kind of grew up in this family where sports were always in our, in our lives. So, just having this decision to coach boys, JV lacrosse, or, or just kind of take this program over a girl, I, I was 22. Sorry. So I said, hey, you know, let's, let's try this girls program. It sounds great. I get to be a head coach, I get to make my own hours whatever, and, you know, it was a great experience. I mean, it was a really cool – yeah, I did it at Andover High School for three years. Um, I learned a ton about just coaching and running a program. Um, And, and honestly, coaching girls, as you know with your daughter, is they want to listen. They want to constantly improve, and they want to impress you. That's probably the wrong word. But they're they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, show that they're they're listening and, and that they're coachable. They actually do look at you when you talk half the time. (laughs) Exactly. And you can see them nodding and like, oh, that makes sense, where the guys are looking at you, but they're probably thinking, well, my way is probably better, so I don't know. (laughs) So it was a really fulfilling three years. Um, It was hard to leave. Um, Merrimack, when I left, was in a great position. Um, We won our conference and was, you know, ranked fifth in the country. And then kind of after I left, my coach, who we'll talk about later, is one of my mentors. Uh, he ended up going into his, you know, focusing more on his business and it was part time. And then they hired a coach and, and it just didn't go right. So Merrimack went from this team that was kind of competing for final four bids to, you know, a three and 13 team. And, you know, it was a great opportunity. I think I might have been the only person that applied for the job. Sure. Uh, you know, I got an opportunity to go back to my ma- alma mater and, and be the head coach there. Um, you know, love my experience there, kind of turned the program around and, you um, you know, was in a position to kind of get the thing really going, and and you know, I, I don't, I don't shy away from this conversation. You know, I I was asked to leave. Um, I was 26, and um, I don't, I still disagree at, at what had happened, but I was a little brazen and didn't always, you know, it was part time, and the challenges coming with communication and being a part time coach and. Trying to get this thing off the off the road off you know get this thing back to where i thought it belonged and uh um, ad and myself just didn't see eye to eye so yeah. you know i called into his office one day and just said hey we're going to move in another direction so you know i had this decision to make because both andover and merrimack were part-time jobs and i was kind of i i was able to, to secure accounting jobs with startup companies where i could really dictate my own schedule i had great bosses that kind of understood um, this was important to me and allowed me, as long as I got my work done, to build my schedule, work at home, do different things that allowed me to coach. So it, it was – but it, I kind of came to this crossroads where I had to decide, am, hey, am I going to go to the account? I was making a, a nice salary. Was I going to go this route or was I really going to take a shot at, at being a Division One coach? And coincidingly, you know, the opportunity at Yale opened up and had a great conversation with Coach Shea. And literally had to make the decision to go take a $7,000 job yep. or kind of be comfortable in, in my other career. So kind of left it all on the table and, and moved to Connecticut. And um, it was it was the best decision I ever made. No doubt. Uh, obviously, the, those six years were some of the, my favorite of my life. Um, met some great people, got to, you know, be an understudy at Andy, was given an opportunity two years in to run a defense, uh, recruit, uh, really have autonomy over not only the kids I recruited, but um, the, the the defense. And, and then just certainly, I said I made $7,000, but Andy was so generous in his opportunity to make money off of camp and clinics and things like that. that Hot uh, beds, baby. Yeah, that I, that I could make a living. So, you know, that, that that all came to fruition. Spent six years there, but my ultimate goal was to, to kind of work myself up the ladder and be a head Division One coach, and when the opportunity – presented itself at Boston, uh, you know, I went for it, gone to blazing, and, and was happy to be given this opportunity, and, and these six years have been great.
1: Very cool, very interesting, so cool that you got to coach girls lacrosse. I mean, most men will be like, I don't know anything about the game, but but actually the games are pretty darn similar. I mean, there's some rules differences, uh, the officiating might drive you insane, but um, yeah. in the end, you know, the fundamentals of that and um, in the, in, in the teamwork and the movements and the skills and the footwork, I mean, it's all pretty True. much the same.
0: So I got, I got like two funny stories about that. So, I mean, very true. The The game is, everyone says it's so different and, and certainly there is, but at the end of the day, there's still off ball movement. There's still passing is still king. Um, you know, you can do different things, uh, you know, defensively that are similar Sliding's a little bit similar. Um, but, but two stories that always stick out to me is just like my first practice, not understanding shooting space and having a girl like literally trying to explain it to me and, not really get it, but kind of get it. But, like, I, I knew it was a rule. But, you know, I'm, I'm teaching something. And th- this girl who was uh, Diana Crawford, whose dad was a, a long-time referee, coming up to me like, Coach, you're, you're teaching this rule that you, you can't do. We can't do that. And I was, like, unbelievable, like, trying to, uh, like, decipher. And, and literally my first impression to these girls is that I want to come off as I know what the hell I'm talking about and, and teaching something incorrectly but this girl kind of having the the confidence to come up to me and, and try to help and then the, the second one is we played beverly who at the time was my first game what was a good team and my roommate from my, my roommate who played basketball with me at merrimack um w- i just asked him to be my assistant coach and he said yeah and he was a he's a great guy and he went on to coach merrimack after I, or coach andrew after i left but the first game we win this game like beverly's like You know, they have tradition, and literally this is our first time ever on a field, and it was kind of Massachusetts' normal winter where we had yet to be on the field. We were in a field house, so John and I go up to the field. We get there an hour early. We're literally walking on the fields and looking at the lines because we didn't – we've kind of – we've seen it in a rule book, but we didn't really know how big a fan was. We really didn't know how big we are. So we're, like, pacing it off, and we're walking. We're like, whoa, look at this. So, anyway, we end up winning this game. Our our goalie – I'll never forget, our goalie stands on our head. We call timeout, and girls are crying, and girls are like losing their mind. And I mean, must have three or four girls cried in the game, and we're riding home on the bus. I'm like, John, what? What happens when we lose? Like we just that. won this like incredible game, and girls were crying, and you know, it turned out to, to be fine, and it was just yeah. like. uh and the guys are emotional too, but it was just kind of like this, holy smoke, what do we get ourselves into? But oh, no like I said earlier, it, it was so fun and, um, you know, still a, a really good memories of my coaching career.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, I would love to hear about um, along the way the mentors that, you know, sort of sure. shaped you and maybe either stories or things that you learned from them.
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest mentor in my life was, was certainly my mother. Um, I mean, just watching her career and how she coached. I mean, she had one job her entire life. She was the athletic director at Villa Maria High School and outside of, uh, outside of Malvern. So it's the sister school of Malvern Prep. And just to kind of see how professional she was and how diligent she was and, you know, having this, um, you know, the the standard that she set for her programs, won multiple state championships. And uh, you know just a litany of games and just to kind of watch her and how important it was to her but to never lose focus on um, her focus on her on her team and her kids and, and kind of non-negotiables that she grew up with uh, and that she instilled in her team. I mean she was the one that would always uh, come home and talk to me about a game. I, I very much like following her career and you know follow her teams and it was really my first introduction to coaching at a full-time level. And someone, even though it was high school, took it very serious um, and very competitive. So she, by far, was my biggest influence. Uh, and then my, my two college coaches um, that I worked with, uh, Frank Alloy, was uh, just, a, just a, a really good person. You know, you talk about a coach's coach. Um, Frank was was just Tremendous in that respect. Um, You know, very rarely over my four years with him that I see him get upset and lose his mind. Um, Always very calm, collective. Couldn't you know? You couldn't really look at him and tell if we were winning by five goals or losing five goals. He kind of had this just demeanor about him and this stability that you know, as a young coach and someone who was kind of furthering their career. Uh, I, I tried to emulate um, because it's hard for me because I'm an emotional guy. I'm very competitive. So I'm sometimes my face is a little bit different when we're down five, when we're up five. So just trying to always keep that in the back in my mind. I, I admire that very much about Frank. Um, and, and then just from a recruiting style, just hard work. Here was a guy that was running a full-time business, very successful business. And then in his spare time was, was coaching this high school or coaching this college team. So in my early career, I was doing things very similar to Frank, where I had a full-time job and that was paying the bills, but I still had to make time and be creative in my recruiting and be really efficient with my time. So I had multiple conversations with Coach about that of just being a full-time, you know, accountant, but also doing this full-time so that I could be successful at, at my place, so I could build my career. Uh, and, and then lastly, you know, Andy was was such a big influence on on me from. Not only just, uh, you know, being a mentor and showing me kind of the ropes, but just, um, you know, the biggest, I always call Andy like the king of culture. Like he is, uh, I think he's best served when he finds two really good coordinators that can, you know, he can have influence on the offense and defenses, but he can put his attention to the culture and and the team building and and he's just a master of it. And um, there, there was times early in my career that I disagreed with some of his philosophies and Um, You know, I found it as a defensive coordinator, you know, if I had 20 guys um, on my defensive unit, the guys, you know, one through 12 that were playing meaningful minutes, like those were the guys that, you know, I was, it was easier to communicate with those guys because I had stuff to talk to them about, you know, whether it was improving their, um, you know, game plan or improving something that I think would help us on Saturdays. Andy really maybe take a step back and say, you know, I got to worry about 13 through 20 too, and that certainly he was worried one through 45, and he always said that, um, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And at, at times I didn't believe it, but you know, as the program got better, and I saw the uh, how much how much those guys on the lower half as far as talent were meaning to the team from a scout, from an energy, from just guys do, would do anything for those guys. And when they got their opportunities in the games, guys would go crazy. I, I really came um, in kind of full circle that, you know, th- these guys are, are really important. And if I don't give it their, their due attention, that, you know, the team's not going to reach its full potential. So um, mm-hmm. I love that from Andy. I learned just so much from him just from um, just an X's and O standpoint, just how to prepare. Uh, I, I One thing that was always key is just there, there's a life outside of lacrosse. Um, sometimes you get so caught up in, you know, worrying about wins and results, you know, wins and losses, we you lose track of, you know, personal health, you know, families, things like that. And, you know, I, I appreciated Andy's perspective on that. Um, you know, work-life balance um, that we don't always have to go to every single event in November, you know, just those things that, that I think Andy became the master of. Um, and then certainly, recruiting. Almost in year three, uh, we, we changed our entire recruiting philosophy, and, and we made character and toughness, competitiveness. We made that the staple of our recruiting, and obviously, um, you know, it's done wonders for for Yale. And and we're trying to, you know, emulate that at, at what we do at BU.
1: A lot of people don't realize that that Andy might have been like five and twenty-five in his first five years. Yeah, Ivy League. Um, and for a lot of coaches, you know, they, they, they can't recover, but it wasn't like all of a sudden Andy became smart or hardworking, you know, I'm sure he learned a lot because when you become a head coach, it's, it's, it's like, you can't prepare for it. There's, you, you can read all the books you want, but it's like being in a new parent.
0: Like you just, uh, 100%. You know,
1: but that said though, he, he was able to turn this into a dominant force and do some things that, you know, Ivy league schools have, have never done.
0: He never lost focus of who he was and how he wanted his program to run, and that even though we weren't winning games in my first couple of years, there was still a discipline instilled. We never cut corners. Um, you know, we just weren't quite as talented as some teams. We lost a couple of games that maybe we shouldn't have yep. came down, but it was all this culture thing. And I'll I'll never forget just being. It became a little bit like I used to get sick of it because. For six years, he was – he would say this to the team over – what team is going to be the team that gets us over the hump? We haven't won since 1990. There's only been four – he would say it's only been four 10-win teams in Yale history. I'm sick of hearing about it. I'm sick of living it. Are you going to be the team that gets us over the hump? And finally, my, my, my last year, we won an Ivy League title my fourth year uh, there was a four-way tie, but it, it really came out to the, like my last year with the senior group that just wasn't going to be denied and got us over the hump, and then it, it kind of it steamrolled from there. So, um, but it was constantly, not that it was a pressure, but it was always in the forefront of our minds that there was unfinished business and we need to get to that next step. And, and I related a lot to, to, to BU. Like, I, I kind of feel we're in this same path of, like, Getting better every single year, kind of flirting 14 through 20 every year, but have yet to have that staple win late in the season. Um, and, and I'm I'm hoping it's coming because, as you said, people forget. You know, Andy didn't really have a lot of success till like ultimate success yeah. till year 10. So we're in year seven, and I'm I'm trying to stay patient, and it's hard to because we're uh, whatever you've done for me lately, society. But you know, we're all competitive, but. We're so close, Jamie. If if you would have said this is your resume six years in, I would have said, hell yeah, I'll take that. This is great. But once we are living it, you're a goal short here or a pipe there, and you're like, shit. Like, God, God. we could have won this whole. You know, we could have we could have won the the whole Patriot League last year. We were as talented as anybody, and just we came up a goal short. And sometimes that happens. So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm very positive and very proud of what we've done here. I think we're only on the upswing. I think we're only getting better. Um, the challenge is everybody else is getting better too. I mean, Loyola's trying to win a national championship every day, Navy the same way. Joe's a great coach at Army. I mean, the, the, it's a who's who of coaches in our league. So um, it's just a, a challenging thing that I love to get up and compete at every day. But uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm dying to take that next step with this program.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And it's uh, the, the step from not very good to pretty good isn't that hard to make, mm-hmm. right? The step from pretty good to really good is, is, is step, you know, is a harder step and from yep. really good to, act, you know, consistently, you know, that that's, those are all steps and they do take time. And and I want to get back into a little bit of the conversation about culture um, because obviously you learned a lot from, as you say, Andy, the King culture, you had a choice when you first got to BU, you had a club team there, you had you had your uh, you really had a blank canvas um to, to create whatever it was that you wanted to create. So how did you um how did you do that and, and um you know give us a little rundown of how it's evolved?
0: Yeah, so I got the job in July, July 2012. They announced the program was gonna launch um in January. And I'll never forget just sitting on my computer like I am now and this, you know, thing comes up on Inside the Cross, hey B you starting lacrosse, I'm like, whoa, that's that's awesome. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go through an interview process and, uh, you know, as you know, Jamie, it's all timing. Like we, we ended up winning the Ivy league that year. And you know, if we don't win the Ivy league, I'm probably not even under consideration. So, you know, we go to the NCAA tournament, you know, go through a, a three month, um, you know, three month process and end up at the end of the day winning the tournament. And it's funny because, um, I was heading out to your camp when I got the call, I was actually the second choice, so I end up getting the call that I wasn't the guy. Then I end up going out to your camp for the weekend out in Denver, and then I get back on tuesday and there there hasn't been an announcement yet, so I'm like waiting for this thing to just kind of finalize, and then i'll never forget just I get a six one seven call i'm like I'm, back, I'm like this can't be happening and and it happened and um you know the ad called me and, and said listen things change and we'd love to have you and i, I don't care like i wanted the job and um I, my, my feelings weren't hurt because you know the other candidate was a was a fantastic coach and um that's great so but then all of a sudden you have this job and you're well, what are we going to do here so as you mentioned bu had um 35 years of club uh, we had about 40 kids on the club team so i took a hard look at that i i At the time, I was fortunate that there was probably five or six other startup programs that happened in the last five years, from Presbyterian to Mercer to um, Michigan, High Point, Furman. Furman was the year with us, but all the other ones had happened right right before us. So I kind of looked at their records, kind of saw where they were. And the one that I really concentrated was Michigan. I I was very curious about Michigan just – from a sense that they were the best club team you know, they were either one or two or three in in the club landscape. And then they had, I think they might have two years of NCAA lacrosse under their belt and they just weren't doing well. So, and I, and I kind of looked at their roster and saw kind of their blueprint was to take 80% of the club team and then kind of start sprinkling in, you know, recruits, you know, 20% recruited players. So, when I saw that they weren't doing well and struggling to, to be competitive, and I knew that their club team was considerably better than the one that I was inheriting at BU, right. I, I said, we probably got to go in the opposite direction. So we, we made the decision pretty quickly that we were going to do the exact opposite. We were going to be about 85% recruited athletes, transfers, and then we backfilled the roster with club, club kids. So um, the club program had one more year, so they played it out. We, we made it very clear what we were doing. Uh, I met with the club team. I said, you're going to have your club year. I am not going to be the coach. Um, They had their own coaches. Um, You'll play out this year, and then everyone who has not graduated will be given an opportunity to try out. So that was kind of set. And we went out and recruited 31 freshmen. Um, Started in July, um, and then just kind of worked as hard as we could. And, I mean, first day in the office, I had, you know, eight recruits. It was walk up, come out, walk back, drop somebody off, walk up. Um and I was with coach Gallagher who, who I know you know was working his tail off too. Yeah. Um uh, but we got 31 kids. Um sign up we had six transfers and then we kept six club kids. So that was that was our first roster of 43 kids uh, of that makeup. So it was it was an incredible first year, learned a ton. Was actually more competitive than I thought we would be. Um yeah. had to, we only won two games but lost the army by a goal. Um you know, lost played lay all of the year after the national championships. We were down two goals going in the fourth quarter. So I mean, there, there was some really good game. I mean, we could have won four or five games that year if the ball would have kind of broken our way. Um, but we, we just weren't we weren't ready. We weren't just these kids were literally a year out of high school and um, just kind of when those big plays needed to be made, the teams with some senior leadership or just some guys that have kind of been through the battles or at least some of them, right. um, you know, found out found ways to win. Um, But it was a great experience to get these guys a ton of playing time and then certainly to be ready to come back years, two, three. And then as as seniors with all this experience, have a a great year.
1: You mentioned earlier, you learned from your mom, um, about non-negotiables. You know, what what are those uh, that you brought to be you um, and what, how they, has that kind of evolved since you got there?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we have our five pillars, and the, those, this is another pretty good story that, that I like to tell. So I just mentioned that Layola game. Um, and some are non negotiable, and then some are, are just things that we like to, our, our players represent and, and kind of live, embody these. Mm-hmm. Um, so we played Layola, and like I said, it was a great game. We didn't have Carson Bannister, who was our, our starting goalie. Uh, four year starter playing the M L L and which is a great player. He ends up getting concussed the week before. We're playing our backup goalie. is a national you know, defending national champion. We're playing in their stadium. This is this is a big, you know, big time event for us. And, you know, you look up and it's you know, we're down two and a half and then we score the first goal. So we're down one. Then we, you know, make some plays in the fourth quarter and, you know, the start of the fourth quarter and we're you know, there's seven minutes to go and we're only down three. And and they went on a little run, and they end up pushing the game win, win by six or seven. But you know, we we go back into the locker room, and guys are you know, disappointed, but you know proud of their effort. And and I said, listen, we had some time before our flight. I said, here, here is the gold standard. Here's defending national champion, the best team in our league. This is where we want to get. What do you think they're doing, or what do you think we're going to have to do in the future to get to this level? So I gave every single kid still in their uniforms, gave every single kid a piece of paper. And I said, write as many as you want, write sentences, write words, whatever comes to your mind, you know, write it down. So they wrote it. I collected it in the, in the airport, like these, these things and and these words kept coming, uh, you know, the similarities of of the words just kept coming back to these five things. So I said, okay, well, here's, you know, some people would say competitive versus, uh, you know, um being in the game you know playing to win or whatever it was but we we came up with these five words and and we just made them our staples so it's accountability it's motor it's hard work it's compete and it's family like it came back to those five words it's up in our locker room and, and they're not just cliche like we try to live every single day um under these pillars that if we can be accountable to one another if we work hard and motor and work harder are are, are pretty similar and Mm -hmm. to me those are the two kind of non-negotiables is that we're gonna we're not a blue blood yet we hope to get there someday but we're not a a major i consider us a mid-major so for us to be competitive and for us to win these games and compete at the highest level and try to win a national championship the non-negotiables are we're gonna have to outwork people and we're gonna have to bring a constant energy to it so those are kind of the two non-negotiable we hope through the recruiting process we find people that have come from great families and believe in our family belief uh certainly same thing with competitiveness and then you know accountability you know that's a hard word for anybody so I think we try to instill that from the moment they get in here that you're going to be accountable to your teammates and you're going to be more importantly accountable to yourself so that's like it's a non-negotiable but that's always a work in progress where the other two that we just talk about working hard and bringing energy like that's just that's just what we do here
1: the accountability is uh so critical like you said to yourself and to your teammates and it's it's really uh important to try to get your team to quality control that amongst themselves Um, sure how do you do that
0: well sometimes it happens innately you just have this great group of Mm -hmm. leaders that just guys don't mess with them for whatever reason they are just they don't want to disappoint them their delivery is impeccable a little bit of ass kickers uh, and then sometimes you got to work at it so for the last three years I meet every week with my seniors we we, we pick a book to read I try to relate it to much as I can to the current team and, and kind of the needs of it uh, and, and it starts out as kind of just a baseline for us to, to spur conversation, but um, during these, you know, nothing is off limits, and I'm trying to, as best as I can, talk about the things that I need them to hold their teammates accountable, hold themselves accountable, uh, and, and kind of move this team forward, so every, you know, this this year, it's every Monday, we meet probably for 45 minutes and just go through team issues um and then relate it back to the book we read a chapter a week and um you know we've done this this year we're reading the five second rule um and it's basically the concept is you know you can basically convince yourself to do anything um if, if you give yourself five seconds and almost convince yourself that this is an important thing so there's different tactics and I'm really working with this senior class on on holding our team more accountable and being a little bit more outspoken in their leadership. Uh, Every, as I said, every year is a little bit different. Um, I have wonderful seniors. I have seven wonderful kids. You would want your daughters to marry any one of them, uh, but we need a little bit of a kick in the ass. So trying to get these kids to step out of their comfort level a little bit uh, and and just lead with a little bit of uh, edge um, is what we're trying to accomplish this year. Completely different from what we had accomplished last year. Uh, because I had four alphas who had been, you know, starters for four years. And, um, you know, that, that was just how they were going to lead. And so it, it's funny. I don't know if you experienced it at DU. It, sometimes it goes in cycles because when, when, when you have alphas, sometimes the class behind it, because these kids have been leading for multiple years yeah. and that they're such strong presence, they get suppressed. Yeah. So when their first opportunity to lead, they have to learn a little bit because they just weren't really given opportunities as juniors to lead. And then sometimes when you have some guys that take a backseat, the class behind them is like ready to go because they kind of have to step up a little bit. So it's, it's, it's interesting that I've kind of over the last four years have had a little bit of a cycle of, of these alphas. And then and nothing wrong with these kids not being alphas because you can lead in so many different ways effectively, but just not having like – Alpha class alpha class alpha class it is pretty interesting to me that is um, I've got a
1: question on leadership and in getting accountability um, sort of quality control by the team um, when you're a strong coach yep. you no know, how do you balance quality controlling it yourself sure letting them make mistakes, recognize mistakes, correct mistakes?
0: Well, I, I think it starts not only with them, but it starts with your assistants. I mean, you can't, I, this isn't a dictatorship. And, and I'll say this, there's probably the quote I say the most to, to my team. I don't say it to my, my, my assistants hear me say it all the time. This is your team. Like I, I'm the captain of the ship and I'm going to help it steer it in the direction that I think everybody wants it to go. But at the end of the day, this is your team. So you have to step up and be accountable. You have to drive this thing in the direction you want it to go um, if we're going to be most successful. So if there's a day that we're not feeling great or legs are tired or we're just beat up because we've been going hard, you know, the expectation is my seniors or an upperclassman comes in and, and gives me that heads up. Like they're the guys that's living it. I trust them. I try to empower them. Um, they've been part of the program for multiple years. So I think they know what it takes to be successful. Um, so I, I try to view myself as a player's coach, but also someone who uh, is not afraid to listen to their opinions and, and value their opinion. And sometimes I don't, I'll disagree with them and say, boys, I really appreciate you coming with me, but we need to get better. We, we haven't gotten better over the last week. So uh, we're going to have to ramp it up a little bit, even though you're tired because we're, we're just not improving. Um, but having that open dialogue is, is really important. To me. and It starts with my assistants. I got two great paid assistants and, and a wonderful volunteer assistant who, uh, you know, is one of the best in the country. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have guys that have great opinions, try to, like I said, empower them to bring something to the table if, if they feel um it's in the betterment of the team and then certainly have open dialogue about how i can help them improve this team improve and this program improve
1: yeah i uh got a chance to watch uh, an early season practice this past fall and was really impressed with your whole operation with the energy and with from not only the players but the coaches um and it was cool you kind of let those coaches coach and, and let the kids work and um it was really impressive um Talk to me a little bit about, you You talk about hard work and motor. You said they're kind of similar, but how do you look at them as different?
0: Well, hard work is, I would say that is over a length of time. So hard work is I'm going to be committed to working hard for a duration of a period of time so that my skills will improve and I'm gonna come in early and stay late and do extra shooting and do all, all those things. So I kind of look at that as a duration of time. When I look, when I think of motor, I just think of in the moment going hundred miles an hour um, and never going to you know, lose a play because I didn't hustle or I didn't try hard enough. Like that's kind of what I see motor is, is just this constant energy running from drill to drill, um, just bringing this energy to lift, um, you know, bringing energy to a 6 a.m. lift, like that's motor to me. It's not, and and just this hard work is just a me- like almost a mentality. of This is who I'm going to be in my everyday life, and then motor being in the moment.
1: Excellent. All right, let's switch gears. Um, you know, one of the biggest jobs of any coach, and especially in in, in a startup situation, trying to make that next step. Is developing that probably your biggest opportunity is making your players better, developing your players. Sure. What's your philosophy, and how do you how do you guys go about doing that? What's your develop player development philosophy?
0: Um, I mean, I always think that it's kind of a part whole philosophy that we're going to deal with parts of the player before we start really getting into. Uh, you know kind of the the big picture and you know working on the six on six and rides and things like that Um, you know our philosophy is we need to get better as individuals before we get better as a team so uh, I really like the way that we do our our entire season Uh, you know the first four weeks you know we don't really come together as a team we uh, allow the kids number one to get acclimated to school uh, the first week, we don't pick up a stick. We do do strength and conditioning testing, just to kind of see where the guys are from the summer, uh, see where we are conditioning-wise, to see if we have to ramp that up a little bit. But that first week is is literally just testing, and, and we don't really see the guys. They're they're focused on school, making sure that, you know, the freshmen certainly are acclimated, and the upperclassmen are, are kind of getting their feet wet again. And then weeks two through four is just all skill development. It is three one-hour sessions of you know mostly stick work for the offense and footwork, um, you know, incorporated in kind of what we do offensively. But it's it's not six guys; it's it's smaller numbers. Uh, and, and then certainly the defense is working on individual skills, you know, ground ball work, stick work, uh, you know, how we even how we hold the stick, how we approach, you know, all these little details, so that kind of when we hit that first practice most you know even our practices are, are set up for most of the practice is individually based and working on individual skills but once we start getting into the team stuff we're not constantly stopping to say we want you to change this from a, a fundamental standpoint so um I, I would say uh developing the individual is is certainly an important part of what we do we, we really expect the individual to get better from a stick skill from an iq standpoint from athletic standpoint uh, and we spent a lot of time individually doing that where with the NCAA change in the role, we, we really could be practicing more, but we kind of push back and say, we're, we're still going to keep our individual time because we really think that's important to our individual development.
1: How much of your individual time is live reps versus um, kind of skeleton stick work um, and just, you know, footwork?
0: say most of the offensive stuff, it, it's, it's not live on a defense, but it's going full speed. So between the, the stick work that Coach Slippo's doing um, that has footwork and stick work combined, the expectation is you're going for you know 20 to 30 second high intensity game-like speed as much as we can. Um, so I would say probably 60 to 70% of that is small group work. And then maybe twenty-five to thirty percent is live stick work in a skeleton offense sense, but the majority of it is in small group work. Small group. Or it's you know, it's a midfield rotation or an attack rotation that is part of our six on six offense, but it's not, you know, a full six on six. Right.
1: Yeah, I simply asked because I've been really interested lately in in um just thinking about decision making as one of the most important elements of an athlete's life uh, sure. in any sport, yep. um, and um, obviously the skills: mastering the footwork, mastering the stick work, mastering the shooting, mastering the communication, understanding the movements where you want to be. That's all critical stuff. Um,
0: but- we talked about that when you came out. I, I remember sitting on the field and we were watching an offensive drill. I always find like, and we talk about this in the office. It's just really hard to replicate the decisions that you have to make in a drill, like without. It is. You know, you can set it up, but it's just, I think we'd all feel better if we could say, all right, these are decisions that you're going to have to make. All right, let's replicate a drill that is going to put you in those on a, on a small field setting that you can make those decisions five, 10 times in a drill. I mean, certainly we can do small field drills and West Jenny is a big drill that we use just because, we, you know, it helps us making decisions, clearing right. the ball, riding whether right up, ride back, or, you know, three on two, whatever that might be, you get all those quick decisions. But if you said, okay, let's put you on half a field, you know, half of a half of a field where you're going to catch the ball and you're going to have to make a decision to throw the ball inside or throw it to, uh, you know, an adjacent or skip it, like it's hard to replicate those things and, and get the exact look that you're going to see in the game.
1: It's funny because I think sometimes, you know, you have such a big basketball background. And if people don't know, you are a legit hoop player. Um, you always uh, seem to win the uh, three on three. I only won it once. What? Oh yeah, I
0: only won it once with Slippo's. He's the king.
1: <laughs> Slippo is the <a> king. <laughs> All right. Well, you you were you you were on you are on a team that always should have won it. I think.
0: Yeah, should have. I didn't have Slippo. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Actually, I think you were just suffering from the uh, early head coach. You know, not working out as much as you should work yeah. out. For years, so.
0: In my prime, I'll take my, my team over uh, Slippo's team in my prime.
1: <laughs> but anyways, um. It's to me. It's uh, you know, it it was probably. I bet you would point to basketball as where you learn so much about all of the athletic IQ that you have, whether it's how to beat somebody, how to see what's going to happen before it happens, how to read screens, both sides of the ball, um, how to make adjustments. You know, those are the kinds of decision-making things that I'm sort of alluding to. You know, and it's like I kind of feel like in hoops, it's like it happens so naturally because. You know, you play so much three-on-three, two-on-two, one-on-one, full court, whatever it is, you're just constantly playing. And, and um, I think that's the reason why I'm asking is because I feel like in our sport of lacrosse, it's, 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 it's one of the missing links. Like, you know, you have to be good at all the skills. There's, there's no denying any of that. Um, but it's like, how do you teach a hesitation move? You teach it all you want, but at the end of the day, the hesitation, the feel for, you know, when you get a step on somebody that now is the time to hesitate right? Not, you know, everyone thinks of like fakes and stuff to set up your move. It's it's more about after you beat somebody that you start setting up the sliders and and hesitating. It's a little counterintuitive to do that, but that's kind of like where well, I'm on this kind of mission to figure all this stuff out. And so that's, I know your basketball ground, background is so strong that I figured you'd have some thoughts on that.
0: No, I, 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 I we had this conversation. I hear what you, what you were saying and I, and I actually put some thought into it. It's, practice real estate is so tight. So it's, am I, am I going to go to practice and say, all right, boys, we're, we're going to play three on three today. And, right. and and like, I'm and I'm not dismissing your idea, but to take 20 minutes and play three on three. And I, I don't know if a lot of coaches could, could live with that. Like that is just something where, all right, I'm going to take one sixth of my practice and I'm going to just let the, let the dude, Ball, you know what I mean? So, I get it. Man. And, and that is something. But listen, if it's getting you better and you guys enjoy it because it's a long season, you know, it's a really long season, and, and the fall is becoming, um, you know, certainly with the changing of the rules where we can practice more. This has probably been our toughest fall since my first year just because we've practiced more. We're a young team. Uh, we think we need guys to play more, so we, we've practiced more. Um, so, Trying to give guys breaks and, and be okay with it is, is is something that every, I think, coach struggles with because you you want to joystick it a little bit. And when you just let guys go out and play, not a ton of joystick. You guys are just playing, seeing the read, making plays. No doubt. So. You guys, I love the way you play. And I've, I was,
1: I've been watching some BU film from last year. I had one of my editors cut up a few games. Um, and I had Coach Slippo did an awesome presentation on, on the offense that you guys run. How would you characterize your offensive philosophy?
0: I would just say up-tempo. I mean, that, that's probably the best way to say it. Uh, free-flowing, um, you know, w- w- we'll be different than what we were last year. Obviously, we, we had a, a great player who the ball was in his stick 75 80% of the time we were on offense, and uh, Chris was, was a great player and made great most of the time great decisions. And this year we'll be different. We'll have, I think we'll have more pieces and a little bit more talent across our top nine. Yeah. Um, but we just won't have that one player who's dominating the ball and, and then making players play off of him. So it, it's very, I'm very curious to kind of see how our offense evolves with just more sharing of the ball. And not that Chris was un was selfish because it was very unselfish, but the ball just started in a stick of a bunch. Yeah. So I think, um, the best way I can describe it is, is tempo. We're still going to push transition. We're still going to, uh, you know, play with our faceoff guy and LSM, give them green lights to dodge and shoot and do all those things. Um, and, and then certainly we're going to take the best shot available. Like the, if if we take a shot 10 seconds in and it's a great shot, then take the shot. We we're not one of these control that we have to get the clock under 40 and we're going to slow the game down Mm -hmm. if our first dodge we get right in and it's a great shot you know we encourage our kids to take that shot you know game situations you know can dictate differently but um for the most part we are a dodge you know move the ball make decisions and we get a good shot we're taking it how much six on six do you guys normally play um in in on the average would you say 15 minutes yeah, we're not a huge. You know, most of our practice is skill development. Um, we do four on four stuff a lot, just trying to get those kind of decisions with bigger spaces. Yeah. Certainly for the defense to to play a bigger space and help and recover. Um, so we do a lot of four on four, five on five. Um, like I said, the West Jenny thing was huge for us last year, as far as just making decisions in the clear and the ride. We thought we were an excellent riding team last year because of that. Um, we do West, we, we kind of like assistants always like joke with me because, uh, coach Lattimore kind of brought this idea at, when he was at Penn and they were really successful playing two ways, middies, he said, we did West Jenny every day and it really forced our, you know, defensemen to make decisions and riding. And mm-hmm. I kind of just took it and ran with it where our West Jenny is, we do a 10 man out of West Jenny. We sometimes allow the guys to ride. Sometimes it's a free clear. Sometimes you can ride and you get jumped so there's all these different variables uh that we do to try to create different situations in this small field setting but like i said my assistants always joke with me like what what brain child are you going to come up with today that it's going to take 20 minutes for the guys to understand what the hell's going on and then we got to move on to the next drill as, far as
1: like different ways of running your west jenny you to give yourself different looks right as as exactly
0: like a press ride versus drop ride sometimes we don't allow them to ride Sometimes we, we'll put an extra guy in there. He can come over midfield. So we're working on running the ball out. So,
1: so in other words, the, the West Jane, usually the last guy you touch it is out, and it's a three-on-two. But sometimes you'll allow it to be a three-on-three three to the midline. Yep.
0: Like exactly. Exactly. We have, like, a fuzzy line that they can ride to this, and then the defenses can step up and really pressure them.
1: Talk a little bit about those four-on-fours and five-on-fives. I mean, I feel like that's the, those are such a staple – Six on six is great in 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 many ways, but it's also maybe a little bit too easy for the defense. And it seems like with the four on four and five on five, you find that good balance of putting some real pressure on your defense while giving your offense chances to.
0: Yeah, a lot of times we'll do four on four, and then we'll have a passer at X, so Mm -hmm. that like an open coach where they can still. Because a lot of times, if if you end up not having a ball through X, that there's so much space that you throw passes that. Typically, in a six-on-six hitting, won't get through. Or it's
1: only throwbacks, right?
0: Yeah, it's only throwbacks, exactly. So, you know, I think four-on-four, especially if you're trying to do different things defensively, if you're trying to slide quickly, uh, you know, obviously it's great for that because there's a lot of space. If you're trying to slow down your slides and Mm -hmm. and be a real hedge-oriented defense where you're constantly showing and getting back, it it really forces you because there's so much space to, to be really strong on the ball but also have that great, like, presence before you actually start the dodge. So your off ball positioning is is paramount because you gotta be in the right spot and then be able to get back to yours as the dodge starts. So, um, you know, anytime you reduce the number of players, it also creates just different, you know, slide packages. You know, you could be in a four on four, very rarely you're gonna be in a crease slide because, you know, a lot of times they're gonna end up in an open set Yep. um Which you know, is a lot
1: like that um guy at x sometimes so you can actually kind of play your four man motion get crease slides and, and exactly you know, the right way
0: yeah and you know just when you're in that six on six and you just kind of have two guys that are furthest away from the ball that can kind of pick up the trash and, and help with any mistakes that you might make first but second and four on four you really don't you make a mistake and four on four defensively you're giving up a really high quality shot and it gives the offense space and um, you know, allows them to be creative and, uh, you know, get confidence, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
1: how about your defensive philosophy and how does it fit into the things we've just been talking about?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we've gone all over the place and we, tr- we try to make it um, as personnel-based as possible. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I made a living at, at Yale towards the end of my career as, as being a, a really slide-heavy defense, um, creating a lot of turnovers, having a lot of moving pieces. And when I first got to BU, you know, we were out of necessity. We had a slide a lot just because we weren't as athletic as some of the teams. And, um, unfortunately we just didn't have the experience and, you know, a lot of those decisions on the back end, you and know, we just weren't experienced or as good as the teams at Yale. So we were making mistakes and giving us some easy shots. So we've gone back and forth, um, my, my our best year, coach Toomey, Who's now a tops? He was running the defense. He created more of a Notre Dame defense slide when he need to, mm-hmm. um, and that was our best year. We had some really good D middies. We had some, you know, two MLL players on the defensive ends. You know, Waziat kid and the Calisto kid that were that were as good as anybody in our league, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we did some really good things defensively by just playing straight up and sliding when we had to. And they were four-year starters and had a lot of experience. Uh, and then last year. Um, you know, losing those guys, um, you know, we we went to a basically almost an automatic, not quite Holy Cross and Bucknell, but almost we were sliding the majority of the time to the initial dodge, a lot of moving pieces. And uh, we led the country in current turnovers, which fit with our, uh, you know, philosophy of transition and that that we scored a lot of goals in transition off of uh, creating havoc. And we give us some shots because as the season goes and sticks get better and teams get film on you, they, they kind of understand, you know, where your weaknesses are, but we created a ton of turnovers, started a ton of transition and scored a lot of goals. So even if we're giving up a couple goals, uh, you know, as teams knew what we were doing and a lot of moving pieces, we also found that we create a lot of turnovers and, and started some transition and, and capitalize on the other end.
1: Creating turnovers on early slides to force bad passes or double
0: teams or. Both. Like, yeah, whatever. really both. I mean, we, we kind of give guys, you know, one thing that we try to, we, we like going to people's backs. Anytime you see a kid's back, you almost have the green light to go to it with the hope of him rolling back and making a play. Uh, we talk about motor getting that last poke, mm-hmm. getting sticks in the passing lanes, deflect passes. Um, you know, and a lot of times uh, you might get a turnover where you don't get transition, but you get three guys to a ball just because you just have a, more of a motor than the other team, and you come up with the ball as opposed to only one guy going and the two other guys just kind of watching and rest. So. You know, certainly that's part of our defensive philosophy is to have a motor. Um, our, our defense coordinator, Max Silverlick, uh, he we were trying searching for our identity. Two years ago, we we did not have a good defensive team, and actually one of worst in Division One. The, the one year I run the defense here, Jane, we <laughs> were worse than D1. So, um, you know, he came. We we're trying to find our identity, and he came up with this word, Tom, T-O-M. And it's toughness, organized, and motor. So he wants our guys, obviously, to be tough. And, you know, the organization, you know, are we sliding, are we not sliding, how do we recover, you know, details, and and then just playing with a motor. So, um, you know, continuing to get multiple guys to the balls, creating turnovers, being, uh, you know, making hustle plays so that we can get the turnovers is certainly something that we did really, really well last year. How do you
1: characterize um, the need for matchups versus slide? And is there a way to get the best of both worlds? It seems like. Some of those slide really slide early teams that you referenced before, such as Bucknell and Sons, It seems like they're sliding early to everything, and they're still somehow getting a pull over the backside.
0: Yeah, Um I, I, sometimes I think it's just luck. I, mean, yeah, just I was really, I kind of
1: wondering. I figured you in the league would know, you know? But yeah, the, I mean, I think
0: yeah. you just got four out there, and you're sliding usually to a short stick. So you know, probability is there's three on the backside and only one short on the backside. So yeah. Um, you know, obviously, teams are so smart that, you know, if you start sliding early, they manipulate it. So, they on, in two passes, you're approaching again with a short stick. So, yeah. you know, that's certainly something that, you know, you know, Andy always called it the play phase offensively. You know, we need to be prepared for the play phase defensively. Once a team goes, they know we're early sliding, they're going to do their first motion. Wow. A lot of times, it's a dummy motion to get into what they really want and that's on the secondary dodge. So having a plan ready not only for the initial dodge, but also as the ball gets moved to either actually to the backside or, or thrown back, you know, you're now you're really ready with what, what your game plan is.
1: Uh, switching gears, the Patriot League is just such a gauntlet. I mean, what a great conference.
0: Like, yeah, yeah,
1: it really so is. So of coaches, you know, you've got a national champion uh, in Loyola, and you've got a bunch of teams, honestly, that could – could compete for it every year. Talk to us a little bit about how exciting it is to be in that conference and how hard it is.
0: Yeah, you know, the first thing I, I say this all the time is it, there, there isn't a bad coach in the, in the bunch. And every week is a little bit different from a coaching style. There, there's nine teams, so you end up playing eight of them, and they're all a little bit different. Um, but you just kind of look at some of these schools that are a little less resourced. And the fact that they compete and they win and they win, you know, the fact what Frank Federico does at Bucknell is just, it's incredible. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, and he's just a great coach. And you have to be prepared for anything when you go up against Frank. And, you know, Charlie's one of the best in the business and what a great person he is. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, always trying to win a national championship every every year. And that's just something certainly BU is trying to do the same. But, um, you know, I, I think we're trying to do it in a um, in an efficient and building f- philosophy where I think Loyola is there, and obviously they they captured that a couple of years ago. And then you certainly have your service academies that are, are doing a wonderful job as well. So it really is uh, you know a murder's row as you go through you know the conference. That, you know, I, I look at even where we've been. You know, the first year aside, uh, I think out of the last five years, I think we've beaten the, the tournament champion four out of the five years. And then out of like three out of five, we've lost to a team that didn't even make our conference tournament. So it's just like, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It's just really crazy how difficult the schedule is. Anybody can beat anybody. Um, And you just get, you can never relax. I mean, there, there's teams that are, aren't, towards the end of the season aren't playing for anything, but they still give you everything they get you can handle and end up beating some really quality teams. So, you know, the the hardest thing, you know, we we talk about this in our coaching meeting, is trying to figure out a way that from an RPI standpoint, how to get our conference, uh, you know, a little bit higher in that. But it's really just all the teams playing each other and beating each other, you know, really one of the major components of RPI, as you know, is winning. So if you're constantly going – five and three and four and four and, you know, six and two, you know, those two losses come back and really hurt your RPI. So, you know, last year we were five and three, Lehigh was five and three and was the second seed. So, you know, and then a bunch of team was four and four. And I actually thought it was mathematically impossible to be four and four and not make our conference tournament and, and Navy found a way being four and four and not make our tournament. So it's, it's a, it's definitely a grind. And uh, you know, it will be interesting with Joe coming in, uh and maybe and certainly a couple new coaches the previous years It kind of the, the guard has changed a little bit from a coaching head coaching perspective
1: i i feel like it'd be uh there should be eight teams that make the tournament in that <laughs> yeah
0: it would be competitive yeah. i would say like
1: quarter <laughs> final you know Like yeah
0: it, it it certainly would be i actually like the way we do it um you know six making it and one and two getting that by that by is critical i think yeah. I honestly think the – and Lehigh's a great team, and, you know, they were, weren't playing their best ball towards the end of the year, and we were playing really well. And, you know, we ended up losing a game at Navy to, uh, you know, one goal game, and that was a difference between a second and a third seed in the bye. And, you know, Lehigh made one more, more play than us, and, you know, they were a little bit fresher. And, you know, give them all the credit in the world for turning around because they weren't playing well um, and and endured a, a myriad of injuries. Kevin, Kevin did a tremendous job last year. Um, but, you know, that, that those one and two seeds go a long way as far as getting that Tuesday off. Uh, yes. cause if not, you're playing four games in 11 days, which is, that's a grind.
1: Big time. All right, last question. Um, sure. How do you guys recruit at BU? What are you looking for, you know, from a character perspective, academically, athletically, skill, IQ? Yeah,
0: I, I mean, you know, it all starts with the transcript. Right? I mean, BU, since I've been here, has gone from low – low 50s in the US world reports the you know, low 30s. So we've really made a push. And as you talked about, it's easy to kind of go, even lacrosse, from going to decent to pretty good. But once you go from pretty good to excellent and then you get to the top university. So I think um, as far as increasing your reputation and and those numbers, it's it's really difficult. So um, BU has really made a, a commitment to academics, which I fully support um so the first thing we're going to look at is transcript is is the kid admissible and then as we get you know we are looking at athleticism stick skills and then character and toughness as the, the four things that are that are going to be most critical uh offensively the athleticism can't create his own shot i mean we're constantly looking for guys that uh can just break down a defense we, we find it very there's some special players out there that can that are just good enough and smart enough IQ that they can do work with a guy on their hip. But if you have six of those guys or nine of those guys, it's just really hard when you go against these really athletic teams and good goalies if you if you can't make the defense move at all. So uh, one thing that we're going to constantly look for is is can a guy break somebody down? Um, you know, certainly at the attack. I mean, those guys are invaluable when you can win your late matchup um, and create something late in the shot clock. Now that we have it, uh, and then certainly from a midfield midfield perspective you know can you can you break it down draw a slide and then make a good decision
1: how do you judge so if you're if you're saying you know you want a guy that can break somebody down how do you judge that and when you're out there at a club game what do you what are you looking for how do you tell the quality of shots
0: i don't know it's it's not that i i say it comes easy but like i like i feel like i can tell if i like a kid in 20 seconds. I, I really do. And I don't know, I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything like that. Um, but even when like my assistants will be, Hey, we, we've watched this kid six times. We want to offer him. Can you go watch him and kind of make this final decision? Like, I almost feel like within the first two times he touches the ball, whether I like him or not. And it's just, just so, you know, I might come back to my basketball background, just about how a guy moves and, how how he controls his body and how he can controls the slide and like I just I I don't even know how to describe it, Jamie. I just feel like I just have a good sense of what at least I'm looking for and what I see is valuable. Um, and again, there's I've there's been kids that I've used this philosophy for and said no that have gone on to be tremendous college players. So it's it's certainly not Bible, but um, you know I just I just like a certain athleticism and a, and a certain athletic balance a certain pop to kids that, you know, that, because at the end of the day, it's really hard to teach someone to be a good Dodger. I mean, you can talk about, and you can work on your footwork and you can work on, you know, uh, technique, but at the end of the day, you know, Brendan Holmeyer was a good shaky out in the phone booth from the moment he walked on campus and we did drills and we do split drills and do different things, but I don't know if he got that much better of a Dodger because of the drills we were doing. Maybe he got a little bit more you know, a little bit more efficient with his hand exchanges and being ready to keep his head up and those things. But, you know, he, he was making guys fall out of their shoes at, at St. Anthony's. And, and he was the same when he started doing it against Colby. So um, I don't mean to be evasive, but I just yeah, – no. I, I don't even know what I'm looking I just kind of see it. I'm like, that, that kid's got, got good shake.
1: Yeah, yeah. What about IQ? How do you uh, judge that?
0: Um, now, I think that's different. I think that is different, just kind of where he goes with the ball, um, kind of is he a crash and burn dodger? Because, like, at the same time, if the kid is just – all he is is straight ahead speed and he can run downhill. and We all love those kids, a kid that's 6'2 and yeah. runs like a deer and can make shots going down the alley. Those are always guys that we're always taking notes on. But, you know, a guy that can understand a – excuse me, a slide, can understand a two-slide. Um, understands that it's okay to just throw the ball ahead. Uh, you know, certainly off ball, you can watch a kid off ball. What does he do? Uh, you know, one thing that drives me crazy is, is certainly in these these club games and even in the college games sometimes at practice when when a, a midfielder is outside the box on an offensive possession where, you know, we're throwing the ball through X and, you know, he should be in the skip lane and he's standing 20 yards from the cage, not quite understanding or wait, waiting for the ball, to get the ball back to dodge. So there, there's – just a piece of off-ball motion. And, and certainly before I got my stick skills in lacrosse, off-ball was, was critical for me because I just had a you know, I wasn't good enough to dodge and make these plays, but I could catch a ball inside and finish, you know, just cutting and understanding spacing. And, you know, so I think I have a pretty good feel for what it looks like and what it should look like so that, you know, if you just watch a guy for a couple minutes, you kind of understand if he understands it. Because, again, that's, that's hard to help to teach as well it's just off ball spacing. And you can talk about it and you can show it on film. But, you know, if that's not innate in you and you don't do it without thinking about it a lot, of you're just fighting yourself to do some basic off ball concepts that, that can make it challenging to be an efficient offense.
1: How about defensively? How do you judge guys on ball versus off ball? What, what are you kind of looking for?
0: Um, I, I don't care as much about on ball. Uh, Because just basically from my sliding backgrounds and some of my best defensemen I've ever coached weren't great on ball. Like they needed to cover the two or three and uh, they were just so smart and had great sticks. So I would take a kid with a stick and a kid with IQ over a kid that was just a lockdown guy. Now I don't coach in the ACC. I don't coach in the Big Ten. So it's not as if I need to go against two or three attackmen that can usually, usually at, you know, the mid, the mid majors and the Patriot league, you know, your third attack is a really nice player, but usually is off ball. Um, very rarely do we go against two really heavy dodging presence from at the attack level. Um, so, you know, our philosophy in, in recruiting is we, we, there's nothing wrong with getting that great shutdown defender. And, uh, you know, it's always nice if, you know, even when I talk about sliding as much as we do, it's always nice, and we talk about this a lot, is when you can take a break midway through a possession because a great on-ball defenseman gets on ball and you know you don't have to slide to him. Everybody can take a deep breath. You can almost re- refocus your defense and, and kind of uh, get everybody in the spot and get ready to slide again because you know you don't have to slide. So those guys are are certainly valuable. Um, but But I wouldn't take a kid that couldn't necessarily cover uh, but had a great stick and a great IQ. I think in the defenses that I like to play, those are more important than necessarily being a lockdown defender.
1: How do you even judge when you're watching a kid play? How yeah,
0: you- um, I watch feet. I just watch angles. I mean, for the most part, is is a guy, does he understand different parts of the field and, and how to line up? Certainly in club ball, a lot of times, um, there isn't the practice time so a lot of times you are left out kind of in an island so you get to get pretty good one-on-one especially for poles um you know your approach do you kind of understand where the goal is as you approach do you understand um you know one thing that that you know doesn't bother me but i i, I always like don't don't quite understand is when a guy's running down the alley and a guy's on his he's one step behind him in a trail position and he's the offensive players running out of angle and our defensemen or short stick fight to cut off the low angle and the kid just rolls back and gets a great shot. Like that drives me bonkers. So I, kind of look at that if a kid continuously, you know, is overrunning his player in in a non-threatening spot where he's done a great job for 80% of the dodge, but he doesn't quite understand or goes for a, a terrible check, you know, understanding that, You know, positioning is is more than half the battle when it comes to playing good one-on-one defense. Uh, You know, and then certainly his feet. You know, what does his feet look like as far as his drop steps? um, How physical is he on goal line? I I like physicality on the goal line. Um, And and then just you know, there's certain like little things like. one thing that we were we were big at, and I try to go here. You're either good at a lead poke, you know, a lead poke is where you kind of lay your stick out. I mean, it's so disruptive for an attackman, but not everybody can do that. Like, it's just like if if you find a guy that can do that, I mean, that's that's something that I think can be really beneficial. But if you try to teach someone who's not good at it, like forget it. they lead poke and the guy runs by and dunks it. So, um, you know, the little small things that 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 I think uh, you know can be helpful for a defenseman.
1: So, um, do
0: you recruit Canadians? I'm not great at it, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I wish I had your track record. Uh, I went to watch Mike McDonald at Yale and came back in Annie and go, that guy will never play in college. And 200, point, 200 goals later, uh, a lot against me. I, I, and, you know, it, it would be such a good fit at BU just because of our hockey program. We, we have, we've had two come through the program. Brian Johnson was on our first team, a Hill Academy kid, and had a nice career here. Um, started as a freshman, was a three time captain, did, did some nice things. Um, and we had a defenseman, Nick Ellerton, who uh, is a senior captain for us as a defenseman. I, I don't know if I just, I, I, you know, they're stopped because it, it's, I would say, and you might disagree with me, box lacrosse is so different from basketball as far as spacing and like everything's kind of in tight. It's just hard for me to judge like what is is, is a really good player because I'm going to go more to the the athletic. Like I, I really wanted Jesse King at at Yale, but but I mean Jesse was a you know multiple yeah. All American. I'm sure everybody wanted Jesse, but like that's the type of Canadian like I would want, like a dodging mitty who can get downhill. Like, like I just don't know if I'm adept enough at at finding those inside finishers. I just I the guys that i think are going to be great don't have great careers and the guys who i don't think are are talented or whatever don't look athletic enough you know have these great careers so it's it can be
1: really hard especially if you got like you know 20 you're watching 22 kids from you know Claremont or Edge or whatever and they all look they all have the same skill set it's easy okay. to see the, the know. you know the six two pounds yeah. that's really easy but then then sometimes those guys you know, you don't really want to spend the money to have them become a D MIDI when they're when they can't really shoot you know, down the alley going the other hand. And so it's almost like you need those guys, you know, the Canadians to be able to play the way that they grew up playing, essentially, which is in tight, physical, getting shots off when with their strong hand when they shouldn't be able to, but they do anyways.
0: And then it's also as you said, they're they're expensive. So you have to figure that into the equation. And then you have to have people that understand them. if you only get one are they really going to fit in your offense with five other guys playing American style ball? And like, then do you have to go get two, Do you have to go, or you go to Robert Morris and get six? You know, is that, is that what you have to do? So yeah. it's, it's kind of, so we, we've kind of shied away a, a little bit from that just because I just, I'm not good at it. I'm, I have not been, it has not been a strap of mine. And, and yeah, we had two really good ones as a drill and, Dempster when I was there. And I, I know Andy has done well with him since, but um, I, I don't know. It just has not been something. And it's a shame because it could be a, a really nice fit with our hockey coming in, watching big time hockey. and yeah. the Ryan Johnson kid really like going to our hockey games, going to the Bruins games. So, you know, it, it, it it's a Northeast fit. So it, it could yeah. be a really nice fit. Uh, we just have not, you know, haven't succeeded with it yet.
1: Yeah. The interesting stat from uh, this guy, Mike Mobison is that over the last 10 years, Canadians have shot uh, around 31% and Americans have shot at 26%. Yeah, <laughs> so it's actually like, you know, there's, there's some stats
0: there, but I know what you mean. I know, I know. Well, I'm sure we shoot about 21%. So I'm helping <laughs> this uh, stats out, this theory out.
1: Well, R.P., thank you so much for taking the time and sharing oh, your
0: fun, novel, man. philosophies fun. and experiences.
1: Um, you're just, uh, you've built an amazing program, and I know you're really uh, anxious to take, take that next step and get to the NCAA tournament, and best of luck in 2020.
0: Okay, thanks, Jim. Have a good one. Have a good holiday. See you.
1: The Philacrossity Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now.